You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning, Black Forest Chapel. It is great to see all you guys. Um, We are so privileged to have Steve and Mary Christ with us this morning. Um, The Christes have a very long history with Black Forest Chapel. Steve started coming with his family in 1968 as he met and then wed his beautiful wife, Mary, and they raised their family, they continued to make Black Forest Chapel their home. He even worked for Wayne Weaver and had that blessing, as we all just loved Wayne and knew what an awesome man he was. Um, And in 1989, when the Lord called them to the mission field, Black Forest Chapel became their sending church, and we continue to support them to this day. So Steve is going to share with us ministry updates from last, about the last two years, right? And then after the service, we hope you'll join us here back in the sanctuary for a time of question and answer, fellowship, and prayer for the crisis. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. We weren't here. I wasn't here from 68 until, as a lot of folks know, we moved a lot too. It's good to be back, and it's good to be back on the, it's good to be on the western slope. We serve within faith. It used to be called the Sunday School Union. Um, had all, you know, I don't know why it is, but over 200 years, a mission can be the same mission, but change its name many times. So currently in faith. Uh, it was started by George Washington's pastor. Uh, it was a ministry to poor kids that provided them with the basic education and the gospel and became a church planting group. And then in the 50s, they started building camps and it became Steve. What's in your toolbox? So here I am in 2000, no, yeah, what about 2000, 2001? I'm losing track here. Silver hair. So forgive me, you know, dates, times, ask her. <clears throat> but approximately two decades ago, we, we, had, we had been in northeast Nebraska for 10 years working with a camp and working with small churches. And it was time to come to go to a new ministry. The mission said, how about northwest Colorado? And we came back. And I went out one day, visited the pastor, and he had a ministry I didn't, and I prayed and I asked God for a ministry. And I met, a few months later, a sheepherd. And that was God's gift. That was God's gift. Um, what I've, I've, I can give you more details about how all that happened afterwards in the Q&A time, but what I wanted to do this time was really focus more on who it is I'm working with these days. Now, over my years with the sheepherders, you know, it's... it's I'll use this for context. Northwest Nebraska, nothing ever changes. And if you aren't fifth generation, you're a newcomer. That's kind of the feeling, right? So when I go out to Northwest Colorado, and there's nothing there. And so I had supper one night with three South African brothers. I worked with Peruvians. I worked with Argentinians. I've worked with um, um, Chileans. Clear down the last one I just met this this past uh, winter was actually just from the edge. He's in Patagonia, so from that side of the world. So if you want to, go, if you want to see people and, and enjoy new cultures, go out there in the middle of nowhere. I'll have a, the first slide. This is, his nickname is Tonchi. 
It was one of my sheep herders. This is one of the pictures that I got from him. Tanchi's from Peru, and this is up in the Andes. And you'll notice how it's not real clear here, but if you look off up here to the one side, you can see a bit of the mountain there. This might look like just some nice rolling prairies. I wouldn't be surprised if that spot there is at about 13,000 feet. So in the Andes, we, we often think of mountains like our mountains and all the 14ers. Well, you, we are very humbled as Coloradoans when we talk to an Andean who north of where he is right now, he's got 17ers. So they pastured their sheep and their flocks like this. They build these little rock um, structures to hold them, and that's about the size of a flock. Often they're community flocks, and each man will go out to his part of the area, and he'll have his flock there, and another guy will have his flock over here, and they visit through the day, and then they bring them all back in and put them up for the night. Notice how the lady is dressed. Now everything changes. So the younger ladies don't dress like that lady there. But folks our age... Yeah, our wives would dress more like she is and more like the gentleman behind him, too. Tanchi was a taxi driver, another cultural thing. He rented a car, so in order to pay the rent, he would, he would take people places as a taxi driver. Not a big deal. He pulls up, and the uncle says, okay, the band needs to get to the next engagement. Here they are. He's driving a, I think if I remember right, he was driving a Corolla, an old Corolla. So how are you going to get all these guys in the car? Well, he got four in the back. Two more in the front beside him, and there's still one guy to go. They got everybody loaded up, and their saxophones, because it's down there, saxophone in the Andes, it's like, that's the instrument. And it's not music you've ever heard before. But he did get the last guy in on his uncle's insistence, on his lap. So you've got four, five, six, seven adults, plus the eighth one driving. So welcome to Peru. Next picture. So there you go. There's a good scenery of the village where he's from. And you notice... They, they get rugged peaks and areas, but it's pretty much like this. You'll hit those valleys. That could be at 10, 12, 13,000 feet and 14,000 feet from where he took the picture. So it's not like you would expect here. Next picture. The other group that I'm working with mostly is at this time because the Chilean economy improved so much while the economy here turned down a decade ago. Well, the Chileans just went home because their economy was strong. Why work here? But my Mexican friends are generally not here legally. And so they've been here for 10, 12 years or longer. And they just settled in. And they know how the system works. And their nose is clean. They're out there not causing any trouble. And they're doing a job, most Americans. If you volunteer, I'll have to explain. You don't want his job. But so he's from Mexico. An illustration of the Mexican culture. We sat down one day at his camp, just outside this camp, he rolled up a couple of pieces of firewood, and we sat down and visited. He said, Esteban, in my village in Nayarit, which is on central western Mexico on the coast, he said, my village in Nayarit, I've got an old buddy, and he has 16 children. And he said one day, hey, Pancho, come on over, we'll have lunch. We're going to have a feast, we're going to cook a pig. So he said, I went over, and it was a huge hog they butchered, and they had the hog ready, all cooked up, and the family gathered around, and he said, and they ate the whole thing, just so down to earth. Just, just. He's been saving up money for, well, just to improve life. Uh, his home back in Peru or in Mexico is going to be real basic. Um, not much to it, just maybe a block house there in the country. It's uh, a beautiful area he lives in, but very heavily, um, very, very poor. For the Peruvians, COVID was another thing I wanted to mention. Has not been much of an issue in the Andes, although. It's now becoming more of an issue. And um, Sarmiento just told me Friday night that 
His sister got it and her husband and child too. They didn't want to go to the hospital. Now, they go to the hospital for everything. You want to go to get a checkup, you go to the hospital. Any doctor appointment, you go to the hospital. So it's a little different that way. But now they're not wanting to go to the hospital because, as he mentioned and as Mifflin and Johnny also told me, um, the people in the Andes are afraid to go to the hospital because it costs so much money, for one thing. If you have to have oxygenic wheel in one of those tanks like you blow up balloons with, and they wheel in one of those tanks and put you on oxygen, and you're paying pretty steep money per day. The other thing is a lot of people aren't coming back out of the hospital. They're going to the graveyard afterwards, and so they're saying, wait a minute, they didn't go in with COVID. What happened? So they're staying home, and they're saying, you know what? We're going to go back to the old remedies, and we're going to use those instead. Now, Sarmiento's sister and, and husband and, and, and child, they were looked over by a doctor who just came to the house and said, okay, I advise to try taking this and try using that, and they've come through fine. For the Mexicans that I work with in Nayarit, uh, it's no, no es un problema, because they're so rural, they haven't had a problem with COVID, but now in Mexico... They haven't had a problem, thankfully, in that area with the drug dealers either. So in Mexico, you've got those two problems. The other thing is with my Peruvians I wanted to mention is the challenge that they have that they're coming from is back in the 1980s, the later 80s. Uh, a university professor, Guzman, Abamael Guzman, decided the Mao, say, Mao, Chairman Mao, I can't get the words out, but the Chairman Mao was the great hero, and he was going to revolutionize Peru. And he worked in the Andes. One of the chief shepherds once said, Esteban, that's the reason so many of us are orphans. Um, I've heard many stories about guys escaping. One fellow went through the window one night after they'd had a confrontation, he and his uncle with one of the revolutionaries. And he got out. The rest of the guys in the house were slaughtered. Um, and his uncle was killed too later. Um, they're coming from some real hardship there. My Mexicans, well, thankfully, they're not having to deal with the drug lords uh, in that specific area. And they're all trying to gain a little bit more. Vocation-wise, these gentlemen are, you know, if you're from Mexico, as a neighbor, it's easy to come here and find other work. And, and construction, for instance, or, or uh, landscaping. Um, but for these gentlemen, uh, they like this life. And they're good right here. And it's the life they came from. For my Peruvians, um, no, they're coming from a more modern society, so to speak. And here they have the opportunity. To advance. Fonchi, as I mentioned, had been a taxi driver, but I've worked with taxi drivers, an accountant for Coca-Cola from Lima. Um, the latest, Johnny, he ended up driving heavy equipment, uh, the dozers and the backhoes, the, the big track hose, uh, doing mine reclamation, which is a great paying job in Peru, and he can make a bit more herding sheep here. So it's amazing, but it's what an opportunity they have. So when I come to them, we can go to the next picture. When I come to them, then it's my goal to get to meet guys like this. He's got an El Periodico. I print up a little newspaper for them with uh, gospel Bible studies and so forth in it. Next picture. Or I've got to go out and see, like this fellow over, what a jewel of a guy. His mother's Mormon. But he and I have had wonderful Bible studies. He does have some family members in Denver. And um, this is a, this, just a few weeks back. We went up to his tent. He's in a tent through the summer in some wilderness area in the San Juans. Next picture. These are a couple of guys. Some of the guys end up on the ranch, just doing ranch work to keep everything operating. Next. Oh, and then this is, this is Ober's camp, his tent there, and there's my camp there. So this is how I go to the guys in the summertime. And it's nice. Imagine laying in there and looking out. That's a nice view to wake up to in the morning. So 
What a blessing to be with the fellows. Next picture. But it's not always that majestic glory of the San Juans. A lot of the life is also in some places just like this. Next picture. Now, a few weeks back, just a few weeks ago, I pulled up to Mifflin's camp, and he wasn't there. And I've learned, you just start studying around. And as you look around up above, you're gonna, if you could you pick out that figure. And I saw the figure up there. Oh, he's way up there. I started to hike up, and I realized, not at this age, not at this time. So I jumped in the pickup, and I drove on up. And it was Johnny and Mifflin. And that Mifflin was carrying, carrying his pack full of oranges and bread. And, and he's just going right on up, you know. And Johnny's already hiked from way down below. And we got up, got up to this spot. We're at 13.5, about right there. Why do you think they went up there? Cell signal right there. Next picture. Oh, is that, that's the last one, isn't it? Good. Whew, good. I need to wrap it up. That's a reminder. Steve, hush up now. We need a good message from the Lord. It's a privilege to be able to work with these gentlemen and to share the gospel with them. I'm starting a study in John to try to help introduce them to the gospel and help brothers in Christ to grow also through the knowledge of the word. So with that, basically, it's a simple ministry. Go where they are. Sit and visit. Learn about their life, their culture, where they're coming from, where their hurts are, and love them. And it's, uh, well, thank you so much for partnering with us, for helping to make this possible. It's a rich gift and a privilege on our part to be able to do this. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mary, for being here. And a reminder, if you would like to hear more about Steve and Mary and their ministry and ask some questions and... Um, just to get to know these folks better and the people that God has sent them to serve. Uh, right after the service, we'll be dismissed, and then you'll have about five minutes or so to grab some coffee, and we'll be right back in here, and we'll have the microphone, and you can have a seat and enjoy some conversation. So please feel free to do that. Um, a couple of things that just struck me before we pray for our messages this morning. Um, <clears throat> I love that... When Steve and Mary were kind of at that crossroads, what's next? Um, Steve said he prayed for a ministry. He prayed and asked the Lord, what do you want us to do? And and then God brought the answer. Um, that's just something for us to consider. Uh, this has been kind of on my heart lately as well. Why are we here? What's the? We're gathering. We're worshiping. We are we are proclaiming the name of the Lord in this place, and that is good. And He's receiving glory for that. And we are being His church. We're loving one another, serving one another. All the one another's together. That's a good thing. But then once we are encouraged, we are built up. We are equipped. We are to go. Right. Um, Steve said he goes where the people. He goes where they are. He doesn't expect them to come to him. Um, he goes to them, and sometimes it's 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 quite out there, right? He's willing to go and sleep in his car and um, and and find the folks that need to know the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so, just a question for you as we begin this morning: Have you prayed for a ministry lately? Have you asked the Lord, "What do you want me to do?" You know, hearing some of these stories and some of the financial strain. These men are looking for work. They're looking to provide for their families. And we live in such an affluent country. We are, we have everything, right? With affluence comes up opportunities, but also um, maybe too many options, right? We can become consumers in so many ways. And there's so many good things we could be doing and so many ways to use our, 
our finances for the sake of our family and for our own education and moving forward. And that's all fine and good, but we can get lost in those options. We can get distracted from what God is calling us. So when's the last time you, in a spirit of dependence, prayed for a ministry? I said, Lord, you've given me all this. I have all of this. What do you want me to do with it? And then obeyed him and walked in that. Something for us to consider as God's people. We, we support missionaries and they go and, and do the work that God's called them to do. But, but we are missionaries as well. We have a mission here in the springs. You have a mission in your families and in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces. And so it's not for us to just give some money and let other people do the work. We are the workers. So just consider that, um, and maybe afterwards stick around and ask Stephen and Mary a little more about maybe how God called them and, and why these people, and, and maybe we can learn from them as far as how to listen to the Lord and walk in obedience. So let's pray together as we continue to worship God in the ministry of the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're our Father and that we can come to you with anything, with everything. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He paid the price, the consequences of sin, the wages of sin is death. He paid that price for us and gave us, imputed to us his righteousness so that we can stand before a holy God justified only because of him. We cannot save ourselves. And so Jesus in his great mercy gave his life for us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised again on the third day. He was resurrected. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And because our life is hidden with Christ now, through faith, when we believe in Jesus, when we profess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God, that you raised them from the dead, then we are saved. We belong to you. We're part of your family. We have an everlasting inheritance and eternity to spend with you. We have peace with you. And until that time comes, Lord, when you bring us home or you return, Lord Jesus, we have a mission. We have, we have a charge from you to live a life that's different, to be distinct, to be holy, to be separate, to be your people, and also to take this, this message, this good news, this gospel to the world around us. Forgive us, Father, for allowing our affluence, our options, all these distractions, our idols that we've been talking about, Lord, to to pull us away from you and from what we're called to do, Lord. Please forgive us. We repent of that collectively as your people. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us strength to endure the difficulties of this world and to, in boldness, go out and share our faith with others. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can now continue on in our time of worship uh, by just hearing from you in your word. Please speak to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, help us to understand, bring clarity. Help us from the depths of our hearts to, to know what you want us to do, how to apply this to our lives, to be obedient, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of your word. We entrust ourselves to you. We thank you. You are so personal and that you love us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been following along with us, we're in uh, the book of Exodus, so we're in Exodus chapter 9. I had uh, ambitious hopes to get through all of chapter 9 last week, and I, I didn't even come close. I got through like the first 12 verses, so we're going to continue on this morning, and we're going to look at God's holy justice and his holy mercy. And the reason I qualify that is we've been, we've been uh, his justice and his mercy is being holy, it's because it's perfect. And we've been talking about the attributes of God. Really, the doctrine of God is being revealed to us, who he is in Exodus. 
So God is introducing himself to Moses and to the Israelites who've been in captivity. They've heard about this God. They, they know of the stories. They, they know of the promises that were given to their forefathers. And yet they were in, in bondage and in slavery, and they needed a deliverer. And there was 400 years of bitter, harsh slavery. <clears throat> and so God said, this is the time. This is, this is when I'm going to come and save my people and make a people for myself. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so he is raising up Moses to go. And, and Moses has an interesting beginning with all of that. And we've, we've been, we were endeared toward Moses a bit and we could understand him because he didn't want to do it. He was the reluctant prophet. He was the reluctant leader. Lord, are you sure? I, I'm not the right guy for this. I can't, I don't, I can't speak really well and they're not going to believe me. And God was very gracious through that process and said, yes, they will. And here's who makes, who makes the mouth and the tongue. I do. And I'm your God. And eventually God just said, just go do it. All right, he, he just, this is what you're going to go, just go do it. And so Moses was given the gift of his brother Aaron to go with him, to be kind of a voice piece. God was gracious in all of those things. And Moses was sent. And what I, what I love about the rest of the story is the plagues began to unfold. We don't hear much from Moses or from Aaron. And we just see them being obedient, right? Because they're trusting him now. There was a process of learning who this God is and can I trust him? And, and they do. And they're just, they're just being obedient. And they're presenting themselves before Pharaoh. And they're saying the words God tells them to say. And they're doing the things God tells them to do. And God is bringing his judgment on Egypt, and we're seeing all of his attributes on display here. We know that God is omniscient. He, he knows everything, right? He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. He's sovereign. He has complete authority and the power and the right to do whatever he wants to do because he's God. He said he's the great I am. He's always existed. He's the self-sufficient one, the self-existent one. He was not created, but he created all things, right? He is holy, meaning he is other. He is separate. He's morally perfect in every way. And he is faithful, and he is good, and he is just, and he's full of mercy and grace and love. And all of these attributes of God, they, they, they are unified as, as he acts on the earth and on, God, and on people. In his creation, with man, everything he does, all of these attributes are happening perfectly. Right? And so when God wants to display his glory, he's, he's manifesting all of these attributes to the world around him. He's showing everybody who he is. And you can't help them but stare in awe of him. You can't help but just be in incredible awe of who this God is. And so, um, and so when we, we think of the Old Testament, many people think of a God of wrath and of judgment, and they think of the plagues, and they think of just this harshness, this, this judge, right? He's got his clipboard. You didn't make the cut. You're done. Here comes some hail. Here comes some frogs, some other crazy stuff. Right? This, is, this is the God. And then the God of the New Testament is, is much different. It's, he's the same God. His, his wrath is part of his holy justice. It's perfect. It's right and it's fair because of the sinfulness of man. It's just in the New Testament, the New Covenant, Jesus took upon himself all of that wrath. He took upon himself that punishment so we don't have to if we believe in him. And so God in his complete, perfect, and holy justice is also displaying his complete and holy mercy. And we're going to see that today as we look at the seventh plague. And some themes that have been running through this whole thing, some, some major themes through all of the different plagues, is that God's making himself known. He wants to be known throughout all the earth. So he's making himself known to Egypt, to Pharaoh for sure, right? To Israel as well. They're watching all of this, right? They, they've got the 50-yard the line seats. They're in Goshen. They're watching this stuff happen. I mean, if I was a kid in Goshen and, and all of these plagues were taking place, I would just stand like right on the, 
the, the, the line, right? The, the Goshen line. And I just watch this wall of flies, like right here, and a wall of gnats and like frogs jumping in front of me. It'd be so cool, right? Because God's protecting them. There's, he made a distinction and nothing's happening to them. He's making himself known to everybody. And we see this residually. We looked at a couple passages, but even in like 1 Samuel 6 and other places, the, the, the earth knows about Exodus. It's, it's, a, it's an event to be remembered, right? And so when other nations come against Israel, when other nations come against God, they are invoked in their memory about this Exodus, this, this great wonders and this power of God that was re- released. And so when, the, when the, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines and was in the, the temple of their god Dagon and, and the statue kept falling over and bowing down, the head was chopped off. And what, what, did, the, what did the guys say? What did the Philistines? We've got to get rid of this thing, right? We don't want to be hardened in heart like Pharaoh was and have all these disasters come upon us in 1 Samuel 6. And so let's just get rid of it. They remembered, right? They remember all the things that God has done. We see that throughout the Old Testament, even into the the New Testament. We looked last week about how these stories are a reminder, they're a warning for us, specifically the idea of idolatry. And so these, these amazing things are taking place. God is making himself known. So I, I really hope that you are learning more about who our God is, that maybe you haven't read all of these things before. Maybe you have, and it's been a long time, and you've forgotten how powerful he is, how good he is. The other thing God's doing is he's judging, rightfully, fairly, judiciously, perfectly, he's judging Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and all all the gods of Egypt, right? And we've talked about the seriousness of idolatry last week and how we we can't uh, just put aside that we don't look at, we don't, you know, have wooden idols and things made of gold put on our shelves. We're not bowing down to these, these material things, but really we are in many ways. There are many idols in our life. Anything that takes our affection away from the Lord, anything that takes our worship away from him alone, Anything that receives glory apart from God is idolatry. And he's a jealous God. He's the only one deserving of glory. He's the only one that can do anything. All these other idols can't help. They cannot save. So he's judging all of them one by one. He's just knocking them down. Right? Last week we looked at the boils and the, the plague of the boils and the sores and the physical torture that was taking place. And the gods of health and disease and even the magicians, no one could stand before this holy God. No one could stand before Moses, his prophet. He's the true God. All these other gods are false. They cannot save. They can't help. So we know God's making himself known. He's judging Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the gods of Egypt, and he's saving his people all at the same time. He's delivering them. He chose them. He's growing them to a nation. He's delivering them from bondage. He's making the distinction between Israel and Egypt. That is a good thing. So we come to the seventh plague, the plague of hail. And this one might be a little more, we might be able to understand this a little better living in Colorado. I'm from Pittsburgh. We didn't have much hail back there. Um, But here, it's been interesting that it can be a nice sunny day, taking a walk, taking a drive. The wind kicks in. Suddenly, you're just in a torrential downpour, and you're yelling through the whole thing. No, completely helpless because your car is getting dented, or your newly planted plants or trees are getting destroyed, or whatever it might be, right? The hail can be pretty devastating. It's super loud. Have you, have you ever, maybe I'm the only one, whenever the hailstorm starts, and you hear it on the news, and you can kind of see it far away, and you think you're good, for a little while. But then you're, you're thinking, maybe I need to find a gas station where there's an overhead. You start to plan out, where's the cover, right? And then you get stuck in it and you can't do anything. So you kind of drive up on the side of the road under a tree and like this much of your car is covered, like this much, that's it. And you just kind of sit there and you're just at the mercy of this hail and it's just loud. You can't hear anything, you can't, right? 
you just got to kind of put up with it. I remember driving back from Denver one time and it started and everyone merged under the, under the over, overpass and there were all these cars and we're all just sitting there just staring at each other and the, everyone else who's on the outside were just like, oh, those suckers, so sorry, but my car's safe today, right? No dent repair today. It, it can be a horrible feeling. You're completely helpless. And so we have some idea of maybe what hell looks like, but not quite like this. Let's take a look at chapter 9, verses 13 through 17. We'll, we're, I broke this up into four different sections. Um, we'll talk about four different kind of things happening in this plague. A lot of things happening. Um, we'll cover a few things. The first is in verses 13 through 17 that God is restating his purpose in the plagues, and he's calling out, he's exposing Pharaoh's sin. So we know Pharaoh's been sinful. We know he's been... Um, uh, hardened in his heart by God, by he's hardened his own heart by these circumstances. He's been resistant, disobedient. Uh, but God calls out specifically what's taking place here. Uh, chapter 9, verse 13. This is after the boils just took place, seventh plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And I, I love that God is consistently putting his name out in front of Pharaoh. Let me remind you who I am, right? You have all the other pantheon of gods memorized. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. He's the self-existent one, the God of the Hebrews. And he says, let my people go that they may serve me. They might worship me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. So God is restating his purpose in the plagues. He said he could have, he could have already finished this a long time ago, right? He could have snapped his finger, and everything would have been done. Egypt would have been cut off from the earth. But instead, he's, he's allowed them to persist. He's allowed them to, to continue on, even in the midst of all these plagues. And they're, really, they're, their whole nation, one scholar said, is being decreated in a decreation cycle. God is stripping away everything, all of their provision, their economy. He's taking away all of it. Now he's taking away their health, all their reliance on all the gods related to all of this stuff too. He's showing them who he is. He's, he's removing all of it. He says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants to show his power. He wants to receive the glory that only belongs to him and a nation of idols. He's the true God. He's making himself known. And he wants his name to be proclaimed in all the earth. He wants this to be remembered. And so in his righteous judgment, he's also setting the stage for other nations and other generations to know that he is God. And that is good. And he says, you are still exalting yourself against my people. This is Pharaoh's sin. The word hardened that we've been seeing multiple times throughout these things, that Pharaoh's hardening his heart, it means that he's honoring himself. He's, 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 he's exalting himself above God. He's exalting himself over God's people. He wants to be God. He wants to be in control. He wants to be the only authority. He wants to say what happens and what doesn't happen in Egypt. And he keeps exalting himself. So part of the hardening is for him to be God and for, for Yahweh to be put aside. He's rebelling against the true God. 
He will not submit himself. He's exalting himself. And we know what happens. Those who exalt themselves, what? They will be humbled. But those who humble themselves before God will be exalted. Why? Because of who he is. If you're studying this, if you understand all these attributes, you have no choice but to get on your knees. You have no choice to be humble before this mighty God. We are the creation. He's the creator God. He has no beginning and no end. We do. How can we be so arrogant to stand before him and think we can solve all of our problems on our own, that we can save ourselves? We can't. Turn on the news, look around you, talk to a neighbor, look at your own life. You can save nothing, right? All of our solution, man's solutions, just create more problems. Only God can save. He's the only one. And so I love that he calls it out. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And so God's about to bring um, the next plague on all these gods, Pharaoh included. And one thing that's interesting in this one that's different in verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. And literally that means in the Hebrew, on your heart. He's sending all the rest of the plagues on his heart and on his servants. This is going to be a lot more personal now. The hail that's coming is no, it's not normal hail. This is going to be personal. It's going to be on him and his household and his servants and his slaves and his livestock as well and on the rest of the economy. And then the locusts that will come, they're going to, the locusts are coming next and they're just going to finish everything off, right? And then what's next after that? Darkness, complete darkness. Who's Pharaoh supposed to be? The incarnation of the sun god Ra, right? What an affront to his own divinity, supposed divinity, that he's the sun god, and yet the ninth plague will be complete and total darkness. These are all coming on his heart now. This is going to be a lot more personal. These stuff, the other stuff was annoyances. He could have made a giant fly swatter and start working on that with the flies. I mean, he, right? They, they, they could figure the other ones out. They've got through them. They made it through, but now it's going to be that much more personal all the way to the last plague, which is the death of all the firstborn in Egypt, including his own. It's personal. God has upped the stakes and he has called out the sin. And so we move to the next section, verses 18 through 21. And here we see the threat of judgment and a display of mercy, the threat of the judgment. So here's what's coming. But this is, I love this part because it really does encapsulate the gospel message for us, right? Verse 18, behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall. And we don't want to pass over the fact that God is controlling exactly when this is taking place, right? We watch the weather here, and we watch these poor meteorologists try to figure this place out. And I don't know, I'm, I'm glad they have a job, and I'm glad they enjoy what they do. And for the most part, we get some sense of what's taking place, but often it's, I don't know, what's happening, right? I would rather they just come out and just be like, I don't know, just look at the board. Enjoy Colorado, everyone, right? Carry everything in your car and just make sure you're, you're ready. But behold, God says, this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And this is important. I just want to pause here for a second. Um, verse 18, when it says, um, such as never has been in Egypt from this day until it was founded until now. If you, if you go over to um, verse 24, when he's talking about the hail that's actually taking place, um, it says, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it had became a nation. So God repeated this twice. And, and there's reasons for that. Just like last week, we learned, you know, why did Moses take the ashes? Um, why did God tell him to take the ashes and throw it into the air? And it would, 
become the boils on all of Egypt. Well, there was a reason for that. There's, this is why it's important to study some of the background and the cultural significance of these passages. The priests in Egypt, the religious elites, would take the sacrifices that they would make to their own gods, and they would, they would take the ash from those sacrifices, and they would throw it in the air afterwards as a blessing to Egypt. And God used that same, same ritual as a curse upon Egypt for worshiping other gods. And so in the same way, when God is saying that, that they've never seen anything like this in all the, nation, all the time of Egypt since it became a nation, there was a, a typical, um, and, and this really hasn't changed much if you think about it from any political standpoint or, or someone in a, um, in a, in a high-level uh, CEO, that type of thing. People that are a lot of bravado, they want to prove that everything that they're doing is better than anything that's ever been done before, right? And the pharaohs did the same thing. Whenever they had a ribbon-cutting ceremony on another city or another storehouse or whatever they were doing, another chariot dealership down the road or whatever they were cutting the ribbons for, they would say something to the effect of, my accomplishments have never... Um, my accomplishments are greater than, than any other accomplishments in the history of our nation. They would say something to this effect. They would, they would try to prove that whatever they're doing now is better than the last so that they get a little bit bigger of a statue when they die and maybe a little bit bigger of a sarcophagus. And I don't know. They, they just wanted to, to promote what they were doing as better than anything they've ever seen in the history of the nation. And so God is, is saying that now as well. But when he says it, he actually means it, right? This hail is going to be such that they've never seen it before. And maybe when he said that, and maybe Pharaoh and maybe his servants, maybe they heard this and they thought to themselves, yeah, I've heard this before. I've heard Pharaoh, I've heard other gods say that nothing like this has ever been done. Whatever, right? But God actually means it. He's the one that can actually fulfill what he says. And so verse 19, he says, Now therefore, and this is the the act of mercy of God, Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field is not brought home, that and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. This is... um, Incredibly important. Number one, even in the midst of God's judgment and his justice, he's providing mercy. He's saying this, this judgment is coming on you, and it's coming on the gods, the sky goddess, Nut, N-U-T, the sky goddess. And if you, I like to, I like to pronounce it Newt, just in case it was, there was a little fun accent there. I don't know. The sky goddess, Nut, or the crop fertility goddess, the Orisis, or Set, who is the storm god. You know, if, if if you believe in those gods, if you really think that they're going to save you, go ahead and bow down and just go about your business. But I'm telling you, if you don't bring your people inside, they're going to die. So God is providing a way out from his judgment. He's providing shelter. He's providing protection. He's given them warning. And we see here, then those who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. So those who feared the word, they accepted it. They believed God. And they said, I believe he's going to do what he says he's going to do because I've, I've witnessed, I've seen all these things. So I'm going to bring my livestock in. I'm going to bring my slaves in. I'm going to make sure all my servants are safe. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord. And literally it says, those who did not set their hearts on God's word. Because belief has to come from the heart. Those who didn't set their hearts on God's word, they left their slaves and the livestock in the field. They were not protected. They didn't believe him. This is the essence of the gospel. If we look at John chapter 3, 
Jesus himself says in John 3.16, familiar verse, familiar text for many of us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is, this is God's promise. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. He's the only name by which we can be saved. Just Jesus Christ is the only one that can save us. In uh, verse 36, so still in John chapter 3, John says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the gospel message in the Old Testament, right? Those who fear the word of the Lord, who believe God, that God's judgment is coming, and God has made a way, he's made a provision, he's made a way to be saved. Those who believed him were saved, and those who did not believe him were not. Those who did not take, take what he said to their heart. Those who did not pay attention, they didn't listen. They were not saved. This is the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you don't believe in Jesus, then his atoning sacrifice is not imputed to you. You do not have the covering of Jesus in your life. And the wrath of God will come. It's coming. God's judgment is coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. Just as God was warning Pharaoh and warning Egypt, it's coming, and they didn't believe him, it kept coming. And we'll look at some of that in Revelation here in a minute. The wrath of God is coming. And for some, this, this, is, this time of, of this whole COVID thing and all that's happening in the world, there are still plenty of people that make light of all of it or think that this, somehow they're going to benefit from this or they're just waiting it out or things are on fire, literally. States are on fire, whether it's forests or cities. People's hearts are so hardened toward God that they will walk down the street and just punch people in the face or shoot people in their cars. They will walk up to a police officer's car and they will point blank shoot them. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of judgment or punishment. They're emboldened and enabled to do these things right now. And that's not always the case, but they, right now it's just, it's, it's all heightened, right? Everything that's in man's heart is just on display a little bit more freely right now. It's always there. It's always happening. Maybe it's happening more in closed doors and in dark alleys. Now it's just happening on the street in front of the cameras. It's always there. God's judgment is coming. For some reason, well, I know, I guess some of the reasons, but um, why is God's word not going out more effectively? Why is God's word not challenging people and convicting people and allowing people to see the goodness of God and to see their sin? Well, part of it is that we're not taking it to them, right? We get so concerned with the justice piece. We're so frustrated that things aren't right now, that things aren't fair. Where is this justice, God? Why is this not being taken? He will take care of it. He's promised he will. His judgment is coming. His judgment is coming, and it's going to be terrible. God has the judgment piece. Let him, he, he, will, he will deal with that. His mercy to the world is through his son, Jesus Christ, whose message is to go through his people, right? So don't worry about the justice and the judgment. God will take care of that. We don't have to focus on that. Let's focus on the mercy side. What is our role? To take the good news to the people that need to hear it. And so are, are people being transformed by God's word? in a way that we would, we would hope and like? No, why? Because I don't think God's word's going out very effectively. We're not sharing it. We as Christians, we, we love to have great theological conversations about many things, right? 
including the color of carpet and, and a church and worship. But, right, the, all, these things are theologically grounded in us for some reason in our traditions that we think they're more important. But we'll have, we'll have theological scholarly debates that stay up here and talk to people about. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but where's the, where's the compassion of just sharing the basic, you know, unfiltered good news of Jesus Christ? You are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Judgment is coming. And that's not... It's not like it's some fire and brimstone harshness. It's just truth. The wages of sin is death. You can't, you can't escape that. You're going to try to numb that, anesthetize that over the period of your, of your life. You're going to try to just make it feel better and hopefully it'll go away. It's not. I'm here to tell you it's not. The Bible says it's not. And this is God's word to us. And maybe many Christians don't believe in God's word, that this is the authoritative living word of God. That it was written by men, but it, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God revealing himself to us. Right? And for those th- people that say, yeah, this is just a compilation of good stuff and good messages, and yeah, Jesus is probably real, but, but I don't really believe that the Bible is really God's word. If you, if you even for a moment take some time to study how this was put together, <laughs> you would be amazed. Right? It's, it's, it reveals it. You would give glory to God. 66 separate books written by 40 men of all different classes and diverse backgrounds, from, from kings and, and priests right, and prophets all the way down to shepherds and fishermen and physicians. Over the span of over 1,500 or more years, different continents all put this, this is to have a cohesive, unified message of the one true living God and of the only salvation coming through his son, Jesus Christ. To have all of that in this book, with no contradictions, no errors, and anything that is a seeming contradiction can be explained if you just take some time for it. Like this idea of the, the, the hail and the livestock, and, well, I thought the livestock was killed in the previous plague, so how is there more livestock? Huh? How, tell me about that. How comes there's, it proves that there's no God and there's no Bible? Because there's, well, if you read it and you slow down and look at it, the first plague happened to all the livestock that was in the field. It was descriptive. It was specific. Do you keep all of your livestock? Does everyone keep all of their, all these outside? Or maybe you have some in barns and right in shelters. There was more. What about after the hail that there's more plants and the locusts are eating the plants. What happens to that? Well, that's, that's in our, our next section here. God provides answers to these things. There's no contradictions in here. You just don't want to take the time. You, you like the fact that you think you've caught God off guard. How can, 66 books be written by 40 people of such diverse backgrounds over a span of such a long... I could put four of you in a room and ask you to write one chapter about one thing. You'll never come out. We will give you food for a year and a half. You'll just give up eventually. You'll never be together on anything, ever. This is God's holy word. And so we have to believe his word. We put faith in it, but it's... Judgment is coming, but God has provided mercy. He's provided a way. If we would believe in his son and accept him, but somehow we still exalt ourselves over God. We still exalt ourselves against God and his people. If, if we are still lost, if we don't believe in him, we think that somehow we're going to save ourselves. You can't. And so whoever feared the word of the Lord, they were saved. Whoever did not, they were stuck in the hail. And so the threat of judgment and display of mercy. And I love the fact that some believed, because later we see that during the actual Exodus in chapter 12, there was a mixed multitude that left with the Hebrews, right? That left with Israel. And many believe that it was just a combination of some Egyptians. Maybe there's some other, um, other people there from other nations doing commerce and trade. Maybe there's some other national prisoners there. We don't know exactly, but there was a mixed multitude going with them. 
as much as God brings judgment, he brings salvation. When they were taking over the promised land, they were going into Jericho. Rahab was one of the prostitutes, right, who hid the spies. She believed God. She was saying, I believe your God's going to take everybody out. Our hearts are melting inside of us because of what we've heard you do. We've heard about the Exodus. We heard about the Red Sea. We heard about this God. And he's truly the, the Lord God in the, in the heavens above and the earth below. So I, I, we, we believe in him. And so Rahab was the first act of God when, when they were taking over the promised land was salvation, was mercy because of someone who believed and they were protected. And then we see that Rahab's in the lineage of David and the lineage of Christ, right? Rahab's son was Boaz and Boaz's son was Obed and Obed's son was David. And, and that's because I know there's genealogies in the Bible and there are friends now, right? We've talked about that enough. Genealogies are our friends. We can read those and, and figure out who belongs to who. God is a God of mercy. <clears throat> The next few verses, we see the power of God, both in judgment and in protection. The power of God in both judgment and protection. Verses 23 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and on every plant in the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the, the fire here, if, we, if you go and read, and on your own, you can go read Psalm 105, Psalm 78. It talks about um, this, the, the plagues and all of the things that God was doing, all the wonders in the earth. You see that the fire really was, it's, it's essentially lightning. There might have been another version of it, but it was essentially thunder and lightning and hail. But if you look at 105 and 78, it kind of fills in the gaps for us. I was trying to picture it. I'm like, how is fire coming out with hail? It's going to melt it. That doesn't make any sense, Lord. Why would you do that? And so I'm trying to think of, and then I went and read these other ones. Oh, it's lightning. And then I'm thinking God's sending big hail balls and then just striking them with lightning and then they're scattering. And he's, I don't know, he's so creative in how he does things. This is how, this is why it takes me forever to do a sermon prep because I'm for two days trying to figure out how is he doing lightning and hail at the same time. The Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. The Lord said, thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Continually. Very heavy hail, such as never been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. It's, it's amazing. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Once again, if I'm a kid, I'm just standing there, just, right, just seeing how close I can get. Can you imagine just the fury of this continuous lightning? Not, thunder by itself is powerful. It can shake a whole house. You just feel it. Right, you you move away from the window a little bit just because it's there and it's powerful. And then when lightning starts flashing around, but continuous lightning, just lighting up the sky, and then hail the, the lights they've never seen before. The display of God's power is awesome. It's amazing. This is the power of God, both in judgment and in protection. Because what's happening in the land of Goshen, God's people are completely protected. When you belong to God, when you've given your life to Jesus Christ. You are completely protected from the judgment that's to come. Now, you might suffer in this world. That's a promise that we have. You will be persecuted. You will suffer for his purposes, his plan, his glory, our sanctification. That's going to take place. But even in the midst of all this taking place, all the, the fires in the forest and fires in the city, the political unrest, all the things that are taking place, you're perfectly safe 
in the arms of your heavenly father. He has you. You are protected. There may not be a distinct line as far as an actual county or, or city that you can walk to as a safe zone, but wherever you go is holy ground. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You're completely safe. You're completely protected. Read Psalm 91. All the, I mean, all the Psalms, Psalm 91, Isaiah 41, we are not to fear. Why? He's, he's everything, right? He's our hiding place. He's our strong tower, our refuge, our rock, our shield, our salvation. He's our deliverer. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because he's with us always. That's his promise. We have complete and utter protection in this world. The last few verses, verses 27 through 35. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Herod and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And then we have a little side note here. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer, or the spelt type of wheat, were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and hardened his heart, and he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The last section here is just a warning I think for everyone, but a warning for us, the, the contrast between a worldly remorse, a worldly sorrow versus a godly remorse, a godly sorrow, a worldly regret and remorse versus a godly sorrow, which should lead us to what? Repentance and ultimately salvation, as we see in, first, in 2 Corinthians 7. Worldly remorse. So finally, Pharaoh says something that makes sense. This time I have sinned. Now, the first thing you have to notice there, he says, this time. So he just now is understanding that this might be a sinful thing, right? Versus all the other times when he's hardened his heart against God, he's exalted himself. But this time, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. But he's not going to God directly. He's not bowing down before God. He's asking Moses to plead for him again. He's not willing to come to this God himself, which is not a good sign. And Moses says, I will relent. As soon as I go out of the city, I'll raise my hand so that you know that the earth is the Lord. So even when God stops the plague. This is, a, this is an act of mercy, but this is, this is a proclamation of his power, of what he can do. He has control over everything. And I love to see how Moses got in and out of there. Was he, it's like a cartoon, right? He's walking and there's just nothing going on him, but everything else around him is being destroyed. Have you ever thought about this? If you just look, how did Moses get in there? Umbrellas aren't going to work unless it's some special, I don't know. But he's just walking around and nothing's going on. Nothing's happening to him. Purely protected. I love it. In the midst of the chaos. He says, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. We know when someone makes a profession that's less than genuine, that's not from the heart, it's out of panic, it's out of just wanting relief from the pain. We've done that maybe before ourselves. We make promises to God, we tell God we're going to do this or that, we, we just really want the pain to go away, but as soon as it goes away, we turn from him again. He sinned again and hardened his heart. That's a worldly remorse. We're not to be involved with that. We're not to just give God lip service. It needs to come from the heart. Our sorrow for sin should lead us to repentance. And repentance is a turning of the mind. It's, it's agreeing with God and turning to him based on what he has said to be true. But it's not just about thinking about it as being true. It's, it's changing our behavior too. It's our whole self turning. 
Some of us like to acknowledge, yeah, Lord, I, I know that's sinful. I know you're right and I know I'm wrong. But our heart's not in that. And we don't really turn our behavior as such. We're not really sorrowful. We're not really grieving our sin the way that we should be. Part of it is because we're not in the word of God. We're not being exposed to what God says about our sin and how it affects him and how it affects us. If we were in God's word and in prayer and asking God about our sin and praying, Lord, show me my sin. Show me what you want me to do. I'm praying for a ministry, praying to be obedient. We will, we will grieve the sin in our life to a point where we're ready to be moved and be sent by him to do something different. We're willing to change our behavior. Our belief should shape our behavior. But for many, they just think about their sin. It's bad. They kind of put their head down for a while, do their own form of penance. And then once the, the, the sky is clear, they're back to the same old thing. There's no change. That needs, that needs to be different. Even within the church, we need to not just give God lip service, but truly from the heart be those who grieve and mourn and wail for our sin and humble ourselves so that God can then lift us back up. That's our goal. So if you have time, read 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about this sorrow that leads to repentance, about Paul's rebuke to the church and how they responded to it and they, took a cha- they changed course that is pleasing to God. And so as we, as we close, just some, some applications. We already talked about some of these. Don't exalt yourself against the great I am. You will be humbled before him. Judgment is coming. God's word is true. And if you read Revelation 16, take some time and really go and read Revelation 16 and about the actual, the, the, the final plagues, the final judgment on the earth, 16 verses 17 through uh, 21, you'll see that hail, I mean, you, you thought that was bad, flashes of lightning. These hailstones are even worse. This is in the great hailstones, about 100 pound each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plagues were so severe. So instead of getting hit by a thousand hailstones, they're just one big one per person, right? This is the guy. I mean, this is serious stuff. He's not messing around. This is the end. This is coming. This is not just a story in the old Testament that we tell her, you know, this is, this is a story that we need to tell ourselves that is coming. The judgment is God's coming back and he will judge sin. It will judge man. And if you're found to be saved by your belief in Jesus Christ, you will be protected. You will be saved. You have eternity with him. You have nothing to worry about. If you do belong to him today, go and tell others about him. Bring them into safety. Show them the way to shelter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. And if we would put our faith in him and believe in him from the heart, confess him as Lord, Follow him as disciples. Lord, if we, if we believe in him from the heart, Lord, we are saved. For those this morning who are here who have not made that decision, who think there is still time, aren't sure about the Bible or the claims of the Bible, I pray that you would help their hearts this morning. You would reveal yourself to them powerfully. And by your Holy Spirit, you would provide a conversion in their life. Lord, there would be, there'd be a new life, a new birth in their, in their life, and they would come to see that you are the only true God. Remove the veil from their eyes. Help them to see truth. I pray they would believe in your son and be saved and be part of your people forever. And Father, for those of us who do believe, who are part of your church, help us to stop all the distractions, the idolatry. Help us to confess our sins, to truly repent, to change our behavior, to walk with you, spend more time with you in the word and in prayer. Lord, we are limited in every way, but you are the all-powerful God. You're the great I am. You know exactly what we need. You know us personally. Help us, Lord, in our inabilities. We thank you for your word, and we, just, we end our time by just praising your name. We thank you, Lord. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.